This broadcast of Moby Lives Radio is brought to you by The New Press, publishers of And They All Sang, Adventures of an Eclectic Disc Jockey by Studs Terkel, a collection of Terkel's famous interviews with musicians ranging from Janis Joplin to Louis Armstrong to Leonard Bernstein, available at bookstores now. Headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the Left Bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Saturday, the 8th of April in 2006. I'm Dennis Johnson. On today's show, we talk with Jenna Friedman one of the librarians behind Radical Reference, a website where you can get all your leftist activist questions answered, such as how many troops are in Iraq right now and what's the military budget. We also talked to short story writer Steve Almond, who's just written his first novel, or actually co-written his first novel with another writer. We asked him what it was like to have to share what's usually a solitary experience. But first, here's some news from the book world. Well, it's official. Dan Brown thought that crap up all by himself. A judge in London has found the author of one of the biggest selling books since the phone book not guilty of plagiarizing the idea for his The Da Vinci Code from a 1982 nonfiction book that told a similar story. The authors of The Holy Blood and The Holy Grail, Michael Bajent and Richard Lee, had claimed that Brown stole the architecture of The Da Vinci Code from their book. And Brown admitted that he had indeed read The Holy Blood and The Holy Grail while researching his book, or rather that his wife had read it and synopsized it for him. But British High Court Judge Peter Smith ruled in a 71-page decision that, quote, it would be quite wrong if fictional writers were to have their writings poured over in the way the Da Vinci Code has been poured over, in this case, by the authors of pretend historical books to make an allegation of infringement of copyright, close quote. Writers of historical fiction heaved an immediate sigh of relief. Dan Brown said he was happy as a clam. Executives from Random House, which published both books, said they were happy and sad at the same time. And the two authors of The Holy Blood and The Holy Grail both slapped their foreheads really hard and said, don't, because they are now liable to cover court costs, which an Associated Press report puts at $1.75 million. That report also notes, however, that sales of The Holy Blood and The Holy Grail are up to some 5,000 copies a week in Great Britain, thus restoring worldwide faith in the cynicism of conglomerate publishing. Meanwhile, the other biggest selling book of all time, The Bible, may have to undergo some significant revision now that with the release of a previously unknown chapter called The Gospel According to Judas. The National Geographic Society revealed this week the existence of a 1,700-year-old 13-page papyrus document that presents a far different picture of the man famous for betraying Jesus Christ to the Romans for 30 pieces of silver. Experts explain the document, written in Coptic script, was found in the 1970s in Egypt. Uh, then sold to an antiques dealer who locked them in a bank deposit box on Long Island in New York until a Swiss group trying to collect all such Coptic documents secured it in 2001 and enlisted the National Geographic Society to help with its translation, at which point somebody said, Kawabunga, get a load of this. This version of events says Judas was enlisted to do what he did by Christ himself just like President Bush, and was the one apostle who fully understood who Christ was. The Geographic Society said it would publish the translation in a book, and the papyrus document itself was put on display at the Society's headquarters in Washington, D.C. yesterday. Meanwhile, in London, authors Michael Bajant and Richard Lee announced they were suing the Society for lifting the architecture of their book about Christ in a London court of law for, you guessed it, 30 pieces of silver. 
The Penn Center's Writers in Prison Committee has lodged a formal complaint against Yahoo for providing the Chinese government with information about the email account of a prominent Chinese poet, journalist, dissident who sent emails to the foreign news organizations about a Communist Party memo concerning the 15th anniversary, anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Court documents show Yahoo's Hong Kong office provided the Chinese government with information allowing them to trace the emails to poet Shi Tao, who was subsequently convicted of revealing state secrets. The findings disprove a statement by Yahoo founder Jerry Yang, who said the company had abided by local law, meaning Hong Kong law, and had not followed the request of the Chinese government, which, as a Hong Kong company, it had no compunction to do. A Hong Kong legislator and civil rights attorneys have joined the complaint filed with the Privacy Commissioner of Hong Kong, although all concerns say the most that can happen is Yahoo will be told not to do it again. Thus, the group is all consider also considering a civil suit against Yahoo. Shi Tao, meanwhile, remains in prison. Later this week, the Irish capital, Dublin, will mark the 100th anniversary of the birth of writer Samuel Beckett, the author most famously of the play Waiting for Godot, but also of numerous novels, poems, and short stories, was born in Dublin on April 13, 1906. And the city is planning an extraordinary series of events to celebrate the fact. In fact, the party has already begun on Monday. American conceptual artist Jenny Holzer staged a light show in which she projected the words to some significant Beckett writings onto the walls of some local landmarks. The Beckett celebration will continue for the rest of the month as Dublin hosts a giant arts festival, including readings and plays and art shows, all meant to show its love of the Nobel laureate, who showed his affection for the city by leaving it at a young age and moving to war-torn France, where he spent the rest of his long life. And finally, for decades, mystery writer Dick Francis was good for one best-selling novel a year, writing 38 in total, usually set in the world of horse racing. Then in 2000, his wife, Mary Francis, died, and Dick Francis stopped writing. He hasn't published since, saying only that she was his editor, researcher, and sometime co-author, and he didn't think he could do it without her. Now, the Putnam imprint of the Penguin Empire has announced Dick Francis's 39th novel. Under Orders will be released next fall. Says Francis, quote, My family has talked me back into the literary saddle. And that's this week's news. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's Saturday, April 8th. And here's a look at the week ahead in literary history. Sunday is April 9th, and on that day, in 1859, Melville House author-to-be, the 23-year-old Missourian Samuel Langhorne Clemens, received his steamboat pilot's license to pilot on the Mississippi River. And it was during this time, as a pilot, that Clemens picked up his pen name, Mark Twain. Monday is April 10th, and on that day in 1925, F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel The Great Gatsby was published. Fitzgerald was 28 years old at the time, and he was having trouble with the title, thinking the book should be called Trimalchio in West Egg, or just Trimalchio. It was his editor, the famous Maxwell Perkins, who suggested The Great Gatsby. Tuesday, April 11th, marks the birthday in 1914 of novelist and screenwriter Marguerite Duras, born in a small village near Saigon in what was then French Indonesia. Excuse me, Indochina. Duras, whose most famous novel, The Lover, was based on her adolescent affair with a much older Chinese man, is quoted as saying, You have to be very fond of men. Very, very fond. You have to be very fond of them to love them. Otherwise, they're simply unbearable. Wednesday is April 12th, and sharing Samuel Beckett's birthday on the 12th are the poet Algernon Swinburne, 
thriller writers Tom Clancy and Scott Thoreau, and children's book author Beverly Cleary. Thursday is April 13th, and on April 13th in 1909, the great novelist and short story writer Eudora Welty was born in Jackson, Mississippi. Miss Eudora won the Pulitzer Prize in 1973 for her novel, The Optimist's Daughter, and her short story, A Worn Path, has been called, quote, perhaps the most perfect short story ever written. And Friday, April 14th, is the anniversary of the first printing in 1818 of Noah Webster's American Dictionary of the English Language. Webster's Dictionary was one of the first to include distinctly American words. It took him more than two decades to complete and introduced more than 10,000 Americanisms. Which brings us to Saturday, April 15th. On this day, almost exactly 63 years earlier, in 1755, Samuel Johnson's major work, The Dictionary of the English Language, was first published. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's this week in literary history. I know my chicken. You got to know you are chicken. I have Jenna Friedman on the line. She is one of the librarians behind the Radical Reference website. Jenna, welcome to Mobilis Radio. Thank you so much. Um, first of all, for our listeners who are not familiar, how would you describe the website Radical Reference? Um, well, the website, just to let you know, is, is part of a project that was launched in order to support the um, the demonstrations against the Republican National Convention in New York City last summer. Mm -hmm. So we use the website to respond to questions primarily from activists and independent journalists. And the questions can range from something as simple as, um, what was the name of Emma Goldman's ice cream shop, to something that's very directly activist-y. Like, if I'm 16, what happens if I get arrested? Will I be separated from the you know, adults in my affinity group mm-hmm. to something very research-oriented, like wanting um, statistics on Army, Navy, on armed forces recruitment. So that's one aspect of mm-hmm. the website. Mm-hmm. You can look at the questions and answers. And then every radical reference librarian has their own blog. So uh, let's see, I can even look and see what the last thing I blogged was. I think I actually abused the blog for the last thing that I wrote. I used it to complain about... Um, Oh, no, I didn't. Okay, I was announcing. <laughs> <laughs> I announced a, a benefit performance of Marx and Soho for a small independent publisher in New York City. Um, Auton Media, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good. Uh-huh. Um, See, I actually do read the website. Oh, cool. <laughs> and then we also have, we have like a reference shelf um, with one of the resources that I just pointed to recently um, before last week's critical ride mass was a, a bicycling resources page. Remember, if you look at, there's the little tab on the top of the site that links you to all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the heart of the site seems to be just that you can go there and you can ask these kind of oddball questions. Um, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm looking at, uh, at what's up on the site right now, and there are questions um, including, let's see, I'll read a few. Uh, what is the current troop strength of U.S. forces in Iraq? Um, another question is, can you please tell me who the non-signatory states are to the Geneva Conventions? Um, another question says, um, uh, Congress has canceled the TIA program, but Congress evidently reauthorized it by refunding the secret NSA budget. So the question I have is, um, let's see, uh, Congress, uh, well, it, it doesn't go further. Um, I'd have to click on it to get the rest, but as you can see, people are asking very simple and very complicated questions at the same time. Um, So how how do you handle this? What's behind Radical Reference? Who who is answering these questions? Well, we've got, um, there are a couple different things. We've got an open source software product called Lightning Bug, which was developed for the counterconvention.org site Mm -hmm. during the RNC that has been... Um, customized for our use. And so questions, when they come in, 
they get sent to whoever's up next, mm-hmm. um, whoever touched the question last, mm-hmm. um, which is actually, unfortunately, often the person who most recently signed up to um, be a radical reference participant. Uh-huh. So um, it, it question just goes to whoever's up next, and that person, um, you know, because we're all librarians or we're all library school students or library workers, we have lots of resources and skills. Um, figure out how to answer it. Sometimes people ask for help. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd say there are like 70 or 80 of the people that are in that vetting route. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on our listserv... 70 or 80 different librarians are... are, are, Uh Um, And then we've got about 300, I would say, on our online discussion list. Mm -hmm. So if someone says like, oh my god, I can't answer this question, or I need some help, or, or one of the things that happens fairly often is someone says, I don't have access to LexisNexis, can you plug in this query for me and let me know? Um, I mean, that's what happens from yeah. the library worker who's been assigned the question, but maybe they work at a public library, so they ask the rest of the group for help. Well, you're, you're getting quite an array. I mean, as I, as I <laughs> mentioned, you're not only getting people asking you, you know, just for short answers, how many troops currently interact, they're asking you to kind of also give a reading on, on what Congress is up to, for example, in the question about the, uh, the NSA budget. Um, you're, and you're not only getting politically uh, oriented questions, you know, how many, how many lefties does it take to screw in a light bulb, right. you're getting questions such as the following. Do you know of any historic or current famous radical three-way love affairs featuring two men and a woman? And, and a woman? Yeah, that was a good one. Um, uh, uh, talk about a trick question. Um, so when you get a question like that, how, how do you respond, and how do you look up a way to respond? Where do you go? Um, well, with that one, I think... Um Dina, who answered the question, found it. She just, you know, happened to find a book, you know, that, mm-hmm. that happened to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's just like any other um, research. It depends on the question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even when I'm helping students at the reference desk here at Barnard, um, if it's a question that requires a book to answer it, I look in our online catalog. If it's something that really requires a journal, I search a database, and mm-hmm. you know, that's just mm-hmm. skill and experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, or, you know, we've also, you know, advanced Internet researchers, and we've also all, you know, learned how to evaluate resources. So a lot of times, you know, uh, <laughs> I'll say like an amateur searcher mm-hmm. might um, go hunting for an answer online, and they'll find it, but, you know, like are they really using a reliable, authoritative, mm-hmm. current, appropriate source that is speaking to the, you know, to the right audience and the right, right scope of coverage and blah, blah, blah. So. You know, we know some stuff. Something a little more focused and uh, informed than just a a Google search, in other words. Yeah. 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 Or, you know, we do Google searches all the time, too, but we use the advanced functions of Google, or once we get to a site, we Mm -hmm. kind of pay attention Mm -hmm. to um, whether that site really has kind of authority Mm -hmm. to it or not. Now, you mentioned having... uh, uh, librarians around the world working with this on you, I, I note that you're also taking questions in many different languages. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, cool. On the site, you're, you're, you're uh, claiming that you can handle questions in, what is it, Albanian, Chinese, yeah. French, German, Italian, Korean, Portuguese, Spanish, and, and maybe more. Um, are, you, are you hearing primarily from Americans, or does that indicate that you're hearing from people around the world? Um, we probably heard from people from around the world. We've only gotten questions in English and Spanish. Um, and the Spanish question may have come from South America, or there were a few South, uh, Spanish questions, um, but I think they're mostly South American. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, I haven't looked at our our uh, web traffic logs lately to see where, where the info is coming mm-hmm. from, so I should actually just do that one of these days. Um, I mean, I think our primary users are in... Um, the United States, mm-hmm. but something was published about us in an English anarchist newspaper, so I think, not in you know, like, uh, probably a small print run, but, um, so we got some, you know, notoriety or attention from that. You, you saw some, uh, some increased traffic from England from that. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Um, and, you know, we've got a librarian in Bangalore, India, trying to set up a local collective, so we'll see how that goes. Wow. And when did the site get started? Did it get started during the Republican convention? It got started a month before, so it was, Mm -hmm. I think, July 31st is Mm -hmm. when we went live. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and maybe because this is a you know web-based show, you're not as interested in the fact that we also do street reference. Now, what, we, what does that mean? Well, that meant that during the Republican National Convention and also um, you know events since then, we dispatched librarians into the streets. So I would be there, you know, with this binder that had information about scheduling. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would know, you know, especially during the Republican National Convention, there was so much going on. Someone would say, "Oh, where's the Johnny Cash thing happening?" And I would know what it was and tell them, mm-hmm. "Okay, it's mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. up on Sixth Avenue, and here's the train you take." Because I had a subway map with me, mm-hmm. um, and I could say who was sponsoring, uh, what their website was, um, and so we. So that's what's called ready reference. We would answer like the kind of easy questions that you can expect. You know, your typical librarian to be able to answer at the desk. So, you know, like the dictionary, where's the bathroom kind of question. And, and how did people know to ask you? Were you wearing some kind of special librarian hat? Well, thanks for asking. We were wearing a special kind of librarian hat. <laughs> <laughs> I actually little... didn't know that. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> it had a little eye for information on the front. Uh-huh. Um, and then we realized that that wasn't enough because, you know, we were brand new. So we, would, we made little... Um, people would write on tape or one of my friends made this like kind of punk rock looking thing mm-hmm. that we put on our shirts with safety pins that said ask me i'm a librarian okay and we had little flyers and we were kind of aggressive about it uh-huh. <laughs> you, know, you, you were aggressive you're going up to people and demanding yeah, they ask you a question yeah exactly uh-huh. well and then once they figured us out you know the especially independent media people were, were very interested in mm-hmm. Well, um, let's go back to the website. Have you seen uh, traffic and and your and your audience grow um, in coordination with political events, or, or how is it uh, how is it happening? Yeah, I think there do tend to be little surges. Um, like we published a ready reference kit before the uh, counter convention, before the uh, ina- counter inaugural uh-huh. last year. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, we get mentioned in the press once in a while. Mm-hmm. There get to be a little surges here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I'm sure you can you can probably chart events by the questions you're getting asked. The pre- it's revealed that the president is spying on people, and, <laughs> and you get questions about the NSA. Is that the way it's working I out? I guess that's how it works, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, and then, I mean, and people read our blogs, too. So I think, you know, um, someone wrote something about um, how much was the... Uh, how much were the Olympics costing New York mm-hmm. City, the mm-hmm. Olympic bid? So someone else wrote in and said, how much are they costing? Mm-hmm. So then we, you know, whoever got that question did a little research. Mm-hmm. Um, as we're talking, I'm trying to get at my, um, my log so I can see if, if there's, if I can find, mm-hmm. um, see what the traffic's been like lately. Um, yeah, and obviously, like, you know, when we get covered somewhere, we get attention. Sure, I, I understand a, a print a, a response to uh, to media attention, but I'm wondering about events yeah, driving yeah. driving traffic. Uh, Senator Feingold calls for censure. Do you fi- suddenly find yourself not only getting questions about censure but uh, an increased readership? Um, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that I I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the way it works now with this. Um, with the software administering the question giving, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I haven't seen a question in weeks. Mm-hmm. So unless I'm staying on top of the website, I don't even know what kind of questions are coming in. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry, I just don't have a good answer for you. So, well, let's get back to the, the running of the site, Ben. How, how are you doing it? Who's paying for it? How is it? Uh, how is it supporting itself? Um, well, the the site is sponsored by a local activist group called the interact called interactivist networks mm-hmm. and they're credited at the bottom i think um and we the money that we got from selling the hats we donated to them they didn't ask us for any money but we gave it to them because uh-huh. the librarians are nice you're, you're selling the hats you were wearing in the street yeah. well we sold them actually to ourselves you know <laughs> like to you know like if you wanted to be a street librarian we asked you to wear a hat you yeah. Know? yeah if you didn't have any money you could have the hat but um we asked for 20 bucks or whatever we collected donations um and but gave that over to for the support of our, our network. But um, listeners can still get this hat on the site. You know what? The hat's gone. Um, we have to make something else new. So we'll make You're out of hats? Or something. We're out of hats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now you've got me wanting a hat. So what, what, what's next? T-shirts? I might still, yeah, we might do T-shirts. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, if you were wearing the hat, then someone might ask you questions. Well, I, I, see, I like that. Oh, I see. Um, okay. But now, have you guys, have, have you ever been stumped? 
Um, well, I mean, if we're, if you were stumped on the street, you would call into home support. Mm-hmm. And so I would call, um, you know, a librarian from, I think we were still mostly United States-based at the time, so mm-hmm. I'd call, mm-hmm. and they would answer. Um, they'd take some time, and, and I'd get an answer for the person. And, then, you know, like librarians, we don't really go there. We, If we can't provide the answer, we'll refer you to someone who can or will explain you know, why maybe that, like, there was one I had on on that recruitment data that I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. and they wanted to know the data for 2004, and it's not yet published. Mm -hmm. So that was my answer. So you you truly can't stump a librarian. It's impossible. Right, because you refuse to be stumped. I mean, as long as you give us, you know, time and resources, it's not like we have all the information in our heads. But, um, yeah, we really take our our, um, questions personally and, and feel deeply responsible <laughs> and and in fact like we'll answer a question and then we'll go back and give more information a week later a month later we'll go oh i just thought of something else and so yeah you can't really stump us or get rid of us well this is something i think people should appreciate about a librarian well jenna friedman uh from radical reference and the url is radicalreference.com Dot info. Dot info. Yeah. You, you know, I have it right in front of me. You think I could read better. <laughs> Radicalreference.info, the website that will answer your radical questions with a team of worldwide librarians. Thank you for coming on Mobiliz Radio. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Steve Almond is on the line. Steve, welcome back to Mobiliz Radio. Good to be back. One of our first guests has returned. Steve, uh, you're well known as a short story writer, but you've just published your first novel called Which Brings Me to You from Algonquin. Um, It must have been a a tricky enough transition going from short stories to novel, but uh, you are on the cover as the co-author with Juliana Baggett. What possessed you to write a novel in tandem with someone else? (laughs) Well, I would say Juliana possessed me <laughs> in, in all senses of that word. Um, she she called me up. You know, she's a novel. We went to the same uh, graduate program, but we we didn't overlap. She mm-hmm. went there. Uh, though I think she's a couple years younger than me. She went there before me, and as a poet, I believe. Where was this? This was Greensboro in, mm-hmm. in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. This was fascinating, uh, and and I actually read her short story. She was like me in grad school. You know, they couldn't keep her in her cage. She was writing all different genres. She's mm-hmm. published a beautiful book of poetry and has another one coming out this year. Mm-hmm. And she's uh, published a couple of YA novels, and she's published three novels in her own right. And she may have published again since I started talking to her. <laughs> she's one of these writers who just cranks stuff out. Um, and she, I talked with her when uh, My Life in Heavy Metal, my, my first book of stories, came out because... I, I knew that I knew her work. I'd seen her read and enjoyed her um, stories and novels, and I knew that she was also very good at sort of trying to get the word out and get interest generated in her work. Mm-hmm. So I think I talked with her at one point about that, and we sort of, you know, said uh, we 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 knew one another's work, so mm-hmm. we sort of had that writer kinship. Mm-hmm where you're an acquaintance and an admirer, but you don't really know the person that well. Mm-hmm. So I was surprised uh, several months later when she called me up and said, um, I'd l- I'd, this is going to sound crazy, but I'd like to, I think we should write a book together. Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, you're right, that does sound crazy, and I'm busy failing at a novel, and that's what I'm going to be doing, so thanks, but no thanks. I didn't actually outright turn her down, but... I didn't. I wasn't excited about the prospect. Mm-hmm. I had other stuff that I was working on, and I was very flattered, but not convinced. Well, then I sold a couple of books unexpectedly, and I felt like I was suddenly playing with the house's money. And she serendipitously enough came to Boston to do a reading. I introduced her, and she said, "You know, I still want to write this book, and I know that you're going to be the person to write it with me, and I'm going to send you the first chapter, and you better deal with it, buddy." And I said, all right, okay, sure, what the heck, what's the worst that can happen? You know, double homicide, homicide, suicide, what's the worst that can happen? So, uh, she, so sends me, she sends me the first chapter, and it's brilliant, funny, 
I got exactly what she was trying to do. It was a great voice, totally compelling character. And the basic plot is perfect. It's a couple of well-defended 30-somethings who meet at a wedding. They're single, long romantic history, mostly disastrous, decide to immediately sleep together and proceed to the coat room, as should all couples, single, well-defended couples at a wedding. Um, but then just at the last moment, they uh, pull back from the brink and say, you know what, we kind of like one another, and jokingly throw out the idea of rather than of, of sending one another letters that are confessions of their past romantic failures, basically. Mm-hmm. And on a lark, they agree to do this thing. And the rest of the novel, in fact, is them pursuing that lark. Uh, my character, this guy John, writes uh, a confession to her, uh, her character, Jane, original name, startling, I think. And then, uh, you know, they gradually end up writing back to one another, confessing more and more tawdry, intimate, and truly, I hope, filthy, uh, you know, romantic secrets to one another. And then at the end, they meet again. So in that sense, it was really beautifully engineered because I know a little something about romantic disaster. And the the letters that we were sending were around the length of short stories. Mm -hmm. So they were, in that sense, I was used to the form. So I, I should inform listeners who uh, haven't gotten the book yet that uh, the subtitle is A Novel in Confessions. It's, uh, it's an epistolary form, but you're calling them confessions. How exactly did it work, though? You say Juliana sent you, she just sent you a chapter. She sent you the first confession. She sent and said, the, you yes. respond to this? Or, or exactly. how, what was the setup? It was very much, uh, you know, it was, it was the process was just what you would guess, I think, if you read it. That is, she, the first chapter that she sent me was the scene of them meeting at this wedding. Mm-hmm. Now, I did, you know, I looked it over and had some suggestions for her and, you know, wanted to tweak my character a little mm-hmm. bit within that first chapter, but it was quite clear what was going to come next. I had to send her a confession, mm-hmm. and I quite joyously did mm-hmm. a couple days later, and it really, then she sent me a response to that confession, and so on and so forth through mm-hmm. the five or six confessions that are in the book from each character. So mm-hmm. in that sense, it was, it was exactly like what you would expect, and our process writing it was very much the same as the characters. The characters are trying to seduce one another. They're mm-hmm. sort of showing off on paper, see how clever I am, see how uh, deeply feeling I am, uh, see how horny I am in some cases. And that's exactly what we were doing as writers. Mm-hmm. We were trying to seduce and impress one another. Now, you guys didn't plot this out? Did you, did you know no. it was, how it was going to end? Or? No, 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 no. Uh-huh. No plotting at all. So um, there, were, there were truly letters to each other? Yeah, there were truly letters. No uh-huh. plotting. There was probably some plotting with a D, but no plotting with a T. <laughs> and we, we wound up... Um, I mean, it's very interesting because, obviously, at the end, there's a coda, what we call a coda, which is them meeting. And just as she wrote the introduction, uh, you know, with, with editing suggestions from me, I wrote the coda from the point of view of my character and, you know, obviously showed it to her to look over it. But, uh, you know, it was, we definitely commented, you know, that was the first draft, which mm-hmm. sort of poured out of us very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the, in the sort of second draft, there was a good deal, what was fascinating about it, Dennis, is there was a good deal of, the, the novel was operating on two levels. On, on that one level, our characters were reacting to one another, but some of the things that they were saying were actually what the authors were saying to one another mm-hmm. about our aesthetics. Mm-hmm. So she would say to me, her character would say to my character, you know, you're really kind of judgmental. You're really hard on people, and you're kind of snotty. And that was Juliana's way of saying <laughs> to me as a writer and as a critic, you know what, you're kind of hard on people, and you're kind of judgmental. Yeah. So, uh, so the, the the initial phase was like the early phases of a relationship. Everything was fabulous, and nobody burps or farts, and everything you know, everything was <laughs> wonderful. And then, you know, it got real in the way that a real relationship will. And the second draft, I'll call it, where we started asking one another to, you know, to really make, uh, t- we edited one another a little bit, and and the final letters were much more combative, uh-huh. much more thorny to deal with. Uh-huh. Um, and, it, you know, it got... There were several points in the course of, of writing this where, 
you know, one or both of us just said, "Ugh, I can't take this anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take this. I'm going to take my stories and my character and take them into my own book. I mm-hmm. don't need this mm-hmm. grief." Mm-hmm. But what was fascinating about it was, I mean, I can say this now. At the time, it was just really combative and tough. And we're both people who are very aggressive on a certain level, but in the end, we're both, oddly enough, kind of conflict-averse. We don't like arguing with other people, mm-hmm. um, especially other writers who we respect and have to work with. But what was interesting was that we both sensed that the accusations and demands that we were making of one another were making it a better book. Mm-hmm. That is, when she said to me, you're being sanctimonious and judgmental, so on and so forth, she was really making certain comments about some mistakes I was making in writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though it wasn't pleasant to hear those things, it, it actually made me interrogate my aesthetic and improve my, you know, improve my letters to her. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, like, I wouldn't have wanted to go through all of that strum and drong, but at the same time, we both had a sense of like, wait a second, this is actually causing us to dig deeper into our characters. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a this is a wild project you've done here. Beyond uh, just simply other epistolary novels, is is there any precedent for this? Was there some kind of model you were looking to? <laughs> Has anybody say, written I a novel with someone else before? Well, no, I never have, a, and, and nor, nor do I think anybody would if they, you know, with me again, if they talk to Juliana. <laughs> like forget it you know there's easier ways to make yourself miserable but um i i say you know i always joke that probably the letters of heloise and abelard Mm. are probably the best (laughs) example Mm. but um we didn't our our central thinking and the reason i was resistant to it initially is look uh, this is gonna. Th- I don't. I, I don't want to be a gimmicky writer. I don't want to rely on something that feels gimmicky. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that's part of the reason that I said initially was showed so little interest in it. It seemed like a gimmick to you. It seemed like a gimmick. It mm-hmm. seemed like wait a second now. This is like a book with uh, with its own little marketing campaign built in. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, the only thing I can say in response to that is that you. You know, for for me, all of writing comes down to how deeply connected to the characters you are, whether you put them in the necessary danger and get to the bottom of whatever their craziness is, what's going on inside them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's my best defense for the book. Like, I'm really proud of what we were able to do, and, and it does connect to all the conflict. It would have been too easy if we'd both just fired letters at one another and been witty and glib and mm-hmm. contrived some kind of happy ending. It's not a happy ending, and it's also a, a very sad book. I mean, both of these people are, are single and alone and lonely mm. for very profound reasons, and it was our job to try to get to the bottom of that. And that's what makes the book, I think, what I would call a therapeutic narrative. Mm-hmm. That is, it, it bears a relationship. The, the relationship I think of is between Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet mm-hmm. in Pride and Prejudice. That Both of those characters are in some way damaged they suffer from pride or prejudice mm-hmm. and it requires the other character calling them out on it remember darcy sends that letter to elizabeth bennett and they have they have a discourse in that book that that only allows them to move forward together once they've challenged each other to really do a, a lot of self-scrutiny mm-hmm. and some self-correction um and that's that was sort of what I was thinking of, because um, I love Pride and Prejudice so much as we were writing it, that it was not that Pride and Prejudice obviously isn't in an epistolary form, but it's the basic idea is that these two characters have to come clean with themselves before they can move forward together. Mm-hmm. But you're also dealing with uh, uh, process questions that are that are large uh, you know writing is is perhaps the ultimate solitary art right and here you are doing it uh, in 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 collaboration with someone and really the only kind of precedent i can think of are, are collections of letters between writers and editors perhaps right um where you see some kind of uh, critiquing process going on well i think that's true and initially this was such a great plan in that wonderful first bloom you know because one of my central complaints is that I'm a lonely guy and I don't want to have to spend any more time alone than I have to because I'm really a very social person. I like to interact with other people and I hate 
writing because it's, it's, it's a lot of decisions you have to make alone and you don't get any feedback for a long time. And then sometimes when you do get that feedback, it's from, you know, mm-hmm. penny anti-critics who have their heads up their rear end. So, you know, that's one of the real difficulties in, in, in my process. Mm-hmm. I'm lonely a lot of the time mm-hmm. and, and doubtful and you have to sort of coexist with that doubt. Mm-hmm. And this was initially anyway, the benefit of the project is that I knew that a smart writer was immediately going to read my work and react to it. Mm-hmm. We were giddy, actually, mm-hmm. at the beginning of this thing. Where you're, where you're also right is that it then became very difficult to have somebody else, to have another writer in your process, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. telling you, well, this, that, or the other, and not even necessarily telling you directly, but telling you through the veil of a character, saying right. it to your character. Right. So it was, it was rough, and there was... I would say there was that initial period of, of happiness to be relieved of the solitude, and there was a lot longer period of feeling like, I don't want somebody else, and I'm the god of my own little universe here. Maybe nobody's right. going to hear of it, maybe it's lame, but there's nobody else but me who, who you know, gives the marching orders. Right. And uh, both of us really, really struggled, besides just being incredible narcissists, as I think most writers are, you know. There was that that sense of it was a power struggle, really. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in in the best cases, the, the the people who benefited from that power struggle were were the characters. Mm-hmm. You know, we we forced each other to do a little bit more than we would have done otherwise. I think it would have remained kind of witty and glib and not quite as dark and not as honest if we hadn't been fairly combative in the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you make your own sort of trouble on the page, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes, for the most part, that's me doing it to myself and to my people. But in this case, Juliana gave me an assist, and I, and I know for a fact I gave her probably more than an assist. Well, you're a solo uh, musician who has done an interesting collaboration here, if an unusual one. You're going to make this kind of music again? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I have written a short story with another writer before. It was kind of a lark, but uh, we were asked, the, the short story writer Alicia Arian and, and I were asked to write a story together. Um, and uh, I like her work very much. And, uh, and we, we had a fun time working on it. Uh, so it, it's, not the, it's not the first time that I've done something like this. Was it similar in the way that you can tell who wrote what? Mm, uh, I don't know that you can. Yeah, I think you can, actually. I mean, I can, and she probably can. But um, I don't know if the reader would know. In this case, it's very clear stylistically mm-hmm. who's, who's writing what. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction. I mean, I'm sure there have been people who have written books together before. Right. Um, you know, I, I can think of a few husband and wife mystery writing teams, for example. Sure. Um, but, but the interesting thing here is that you've got two artists kind of simultaneously making art side by side for well, one effect. That's what's fascinating about it. And, and of course, both of us are just waiting for, uh, you know, <laughs> critics to say, well, the sections, uh, mm-hmm. you know, written by uh, Almond are leaden and, you know, pretentious and didactic and full of his sort of bullying emotionalism. Well, the sections by Baggett are poetic and assertive <laughs> and vivid and brilliant. And, you know, <laughs> we're both kind of waiting because it's a very vulnerable thing. You know, you put your work in the world. I, I think the thing that was fascinating is that I could tell what my aesthetic was and its shortcomings mm-hmm. set against Juliana's work. Mm-hmm. I could tell reading her stuff that she writes in a more poetic, associative vivid way, mm-hmm. and that my prose felt very prosaic and uh, sort of uh, confessional and in a certain way sort of obvious and unambitious. Mm-hmm. Now that's, that's a self-loathing part of me, but it's also <laughs> just an honest assessment. I could see that set next to her prose, mine lacked a certain associative electricity that mm-hmm. I think I attribute to her being a, a poet first. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other hand, I've written, I'm primarily a story writer, so I, I, I think I'm good at getting into scene, mm-hmm. which is where I think the most interesting things happen. And one of the things that we talked about, you know, when we were going over second drafts was I wanted more scenes from her, or I wanted her to be in her scene, you know, in the scenes longer. But what was fascinating was for me to realize that she could do 
Uh, she could she could write as vividly in exposition, in summary, as I was writing in scene. She could mm-hmm. get as much out of a moment, you know, a phrase or a moment, uh, sort of tossed off as as I would do, you know, sort of carefully setting up and engineering my scene. So in that sense, it was kind of um, it was sort of humbling, and in, and at the same time, I think and hope that I was inspired to um, you know loosen the shackles a little bit. In, in my writing. Well, you know, Steve, W.C. Fields used to say that he would never act with children or dogs. Uh, maybe short story writers should, should, should never write with poets, except that it <laughs> seems like you've transcended. Yeah, well, she's, she's primarily known as a novelist, and I think that, I think that one of the things that, that happened in the course of, of the writing is that we both, you know how it is, I really pay attention to what other writers think of my work. That, to me, is the ultimate judge because mm-hmm. they're the ones who are the most familiar with that the, the dogged work mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. all the decisions you have to make. And all they see all the extra words, they see the labored metaphors, they see it all. You know, mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. naked when another writer looks at your work. And I think for that reason, we both were like, I ain't embarrassing myself. I ain't bringing the second, you know, the second-rate work to this person because right. it's just going to embarrass me in the end, and right. it will embarrass me as soon as as soon as Juliana sees that. And it was a weird thing because I think all writers have an idea that somebody is watching them. They have some intended audience, mm-hmm. whether it's an old teacher mm-hmm. or a writer they admire, or even a family member. God mm-hmm. forbid. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case. We had our own implied audience, and they were gonna get the work as so- almost as soon as we were done with it. Mm-hmm. And so that was a uh, that w- that was a pretty in- terrifying but also inspiring specter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the last question is: Are you going to promote it together? <laughs> yes, we've worked out an elaborate live sex routine uh, <laughs> that, that illustrates all of the most depraved moments of the book. Now, I'll tell you, we, we are going to, and I should mention that uh, I'm now a married man, and Juliana has been married for, I think, 12 years. And in fact, when she first, uh, she has three beautiful kids, when she first talked with me about this, she said, you know, this is, gonna, this is really weird for me to ask you this. I almost feel like I'm initiating an extramarital affair. But my husband thinks this is a great idea, and her husband is the writer David Scott, who's a terrific writer himself. Mm-hmm. So... You know, she was aware that it was a uh, it, it was really an odd thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but fortunately, Dave, her husband, not only was a supporter of the project and you know re- read over the work and gave us a reassurance, but he actually came up with the title. So, uh, and we will be um, promoting together. We'll we'll come down to New York City. I think on May fourth or fifth. I mm-hmm. think it's May fifth, mm-hmm. a Friday night, and we'll read uh, down there. And we're going to read. Around New England, I'll do a bunch of solo readings, but we'll also do one together um, on May 4th, and we'll go out and read in L.A. and San Francisco and Portland and Seattle, um, and I think we're going to go to Lexington, Kentucky at a certain point, and any time we can swing it, we'll, we'll try to do readings together. She's a fabulous reader, mm-hmm. and she's got a great sense of humor, and she, she knows how to roll up there. You know, mm-hmm. she's not... She, she's good, uh, uh, you know. She's good off the top of her head. So I think that's going to. And there's a lot of fun stuff to read in the book. So we're both really stoked for that. We just are obviously worried that uh, if we're trapped in the same rental car for too long, again, there might be the the double homicide or the homicide suicide, which is, or the double suicide, which is in and of itself fascinating. Or a new novel, right? <laughs> who, who knows? Uh, Steve Allman, the book is Which Brings Me to You. It's from Algonquin, the great indie press. Thanks for coming back on Mobiliz Radio, and good luck with the book. Thanks so much, Dennis. And that's our show for this week. Thanks to our guests, Jenna Friedman of Radical Reference. She spoke to us from the Library of Columbia University in Manhattan. Remember, you can get to her website by going to radicalreference.info. And thanks as well to Steve Allman, who spoke to us from his home in Boston, Massachusetts. Steve's much too shy a guy to tell you, but he also has had another book released lately, and that's the paperback edition of his great short story collection, The Evil B.B. Chow. It's just out from Algonquin Books. 
And while I'm doling out all the thanks, thanks to the regulars here at Melville House. That's uh, our engineer, Andrew Steinmetz, as well as our reporters slash editors, Becky Kramer and Kelly Burdick, and our publisher, Valerie Marians. Remember, you can write to Moby at moby at mobylives.com. Keep it under a million words, and maybe we'll read it on the air. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week. We hope you will, too. In the meantime, don't forget, that whale is out there, man. Manolo era todo un macho de pelo en pecho. Pero estaba algo cansado, estaba harto de su sexo. Así que se afeitó y se depiló y ahora Manolo es toda una mujer desde que va por el lado de la vida más salvaje, sí Manoli, por el lado más salvaje de la vida. Ricos, finos y elegantes y así sobrevive Por el lado más salvaje de la vida Sí, Natalia Por el lado más bestia de la vida Por el lado más bestia de la vida Si sí, sus amigas le decían Va por el lado más bestia de la vida Y